J.I. Packer begins his classic book, Knowing God, with this brief anecdote. He recounts a discussion with a friend who had gotten into a career-ending dispute with church leaders. And Packer describes this friend's confident and unusual response. Of the consequences, the dire consequences of this conflict, the friend said, it doesn't matter, for I have known God and they haven't. Talk about a flex. Talk about a posture of confidence in the face of opposition. Packer suggests he remembers this comment, which was given as an aside for its definite and matter-of-fact quality. I've known God, and they haven't. Not many of us would naturally say or easily claim to have known God in such a way. Perhaps it strikes us as overconfident, reckless even, the stuff of misguided actions and delusions of grandeur. What does it even mean to know God, to have known Him? What might the evidence of such knowledge be? What does a life of knowing God look like? You have to read the book to to see. (laughs) However, our reading this morning from Hosea chapter 4 also provides us with a picture. We're continuing this morning in our series through this Old Testament prophetic book. And in our passage this morning, a picture of the knowledge of God, an image of what life, especially corporate life, looks like in those terms emerges. And the picture that we see is beautiful and compelling, even as it is challenging and troubling. Hosea 4 Verses 1 to 7, which we just heard read, is, of course, a text of judgment. So the picture it provides, we might say, is given in negative relief. If you've ever seen a negative space portrait, you'll know what I'm talking about, where the black is the background and the white becomes the image. Something similar is at play in our reading this morning. It's a negative space portrait of what a life informed by the knowledge of God looks like. We can determine what life informed by such knowledge looks like from this passage because it describes a life devoid of that knowledge. Our passage takes the form of an indictment, a lawsuit, calling out the people of God for their lack of knowledge. They carry his name but do not know God. And in providing this portrait, Hosea 4 allows us, I think, to say three things about the knowledge of God and a life informed by such knowledge. Three observations that might give shape to our lives today as the people of God, as the church. And what I'd like to do this morning is simply walk through these observations in the passage, focusing especially on the first three verses, before concluding with a sense of where that leaves us today, a sense of invitation for us in the image that emerges. Before we do all that, let's begin in prayer. Gracious and almighty God, we thank you for the gift of your word and the gift of your spirit. We thank you that your Holy Spirit inspired Hosea in the writing down of these words, in the articulation of this image. And would you, by that same spirit now, work in and among us, enliven our hearts to see you more clearly and to follow more closely where you would lead us. In your name we pray. Amen.
The first observation we can make is that a life rooted in the knowledge of God reflects the character of God. The negative space portrait in Hosea 4 begins in verse 1 with a a description of those virtues, those characteristics that are lacking. There's no faithfulness, no love in the land. The words used here, faithfulness and love, are are those that are often used through the Old Testament to describe the character of Yahweh, Israel's God. He is the faithful and loving one. So in Exodus 34, verse 6, which is kind of God's introduction of himself to Moses and the people of Israel at Sinai, he describes himself as the Lord, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The same virtues found in short supply here. The word faithful suggests a truthfulness and firmness of commitment. God's rugged commitment. God is faithful to what he says and to his people. He acts with integrity and wholeness. He does not turn back on the commitments he has made or those to whom he is committed. Faithful and firm. The word for love is often rendered in Scripture as loving kindness or steadfast love. It suggests that God's commitment is born of this heartfelt passion to be with and for his people. It's this passion and compassion that motivates God's ongoing commitment, even as his people fail. This is what we will see in the book of Hosea. He's so committed, his heart is so for them that this word love takes on connotations of mercy, forgiveness, and charity. Because of his love, his commitment is unflagging, unfaltering. It is steadfast. The other day I was crossing the street with my son and as is our custom for safety, as we get to the street, we say, let's hold hands. And he held my hand a little bit, but he was kind of wanting to run away, kind of wanting to explore as we were crossing the path, not the best time to uh, be exploring. And so I held fast to his hand. I held it, not trying to hurt him or anything like that, but making sure that we would not let go. These terms together, faithfulness and love in the context of covenant relationship, suggest that as hard as the people of God believe themselves to be holding hands with him, it is his grip that is stronger and surer still. I know some of us this morning come with a sense of we are fighting to barely hold on to faith. We are fighting to hold on to the promises of God. As hard as you believe yourself to be fighting, as much strength you believe yourself to be exerting, the picture that emerges in Scripture is that God's strength and grip is surer still. He is the one who holds fast to us. These are the qualities that describe God, faithfulness and love. And these then are the qualities of those expected, of those who know him. The same love, the same integrity and rugged commitment, the same mercy and forgiveness. The expectation, the charge that Hosea brings is that these qualities, those that most clearly describe Yahweh, are to be evident among the people who know his name, who know him. There's no faithfulness, no love, he charges. And verse 1 culminates with the description, there's no acknowledgement of God. 
Literally, there is no knowledge of God. These qualities of faith and love are evident in someone's life to the degree that they've received that firm and sure embrace. The translation acknowledgement of gets at something of what is meant here. To know God as loving and kind, faithful and true is related to having the experience of his love and faithfulness. He's related to being so deeply convicted of that truth that we realize those qualities, those characteristics undergird creation, reality, the world we inhabit. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the creator of all things, what philosophers might call the ground of being. And the conviction, the knowledge that at the center of all things, all that is, is grounded in and upheld by one who is loving and faithful, that's transformative knowledge. It changes how the one who knows acts. It permeates the way they move and live, the way they see and respond. God's character, do you see, as creator and Lord of all, is loving and kind. And that provides the environment, the basis upon which people might then take on those same qualities, those same virtues. To fully acknowledge that God is loving and faithful means to live then as though those qualities are in line with the grain of reality, in line with the way things truly are and ought to be. An implication of all this is that the knowledge of God might be less like what we come to know from cramming for an exam or from excelling at a game of trivial pursuit and more like the knowledge that comes about in relationship and over time, an acknowledgement of the qualities of the other. An ex-husband long divorced might be able to tell you his former wife's date of birth, blood type, and social security number, but he does not know her any longer. It's possible to know a great deal about God and not know him. My grandfather, who passed away several years ago, in no way read as much about the Bible or theology as me. As far as I know, he had no facility with the internet or Google searches. So, so much of the world's knowledge that's accessible to me, he never encountered. Yet for how he lived his life, the joy that was evident, the kindness toward others, the love of neighbors and strangers, the love of God. It's clear to me that he knew things and knew them in a way that I can only hope to grow in. Korean-American theologian Sung Chan Ra once recounted how his grandmother's kneecaps were soft and mushy, with their cartilage worn down from hours spent on her knees in prayer daily over years and decades. And Ra recounted this reality as an example of the ways that she knew God in a way that he longed to for all his degrees and knowledge. If you could peel back all the layers of reality, all the ugliness we see and encounter in the world, all that there is, what you would find is God at the center of all things, full of love, fully faithful. So those then who exhibit these qualities in our dog-eat-dog -dog world are not, as we might easily suppose, naive 
or confused. Rather, it is that they exhibit a knowledge, an acknowledgement of reality as it truly is. They're in on a secret, we might say, the knowledge of God's love and faithfulness. And that shapes their lives in beautiful, compelling, and gracious ways. The knowledge of God is reflected in the lives of his people by the characteristics of that God. Related to this reality is a second observation, and that is that the knowledge of God manifests itself in action. We might say that orthodoxy, right thinking, is necessary but not sufficient for the people of God. Necessary but not sufficient. You think of the famous passage from that other prophetic book, Micah 6, 8. The people of God are called to do justice and mercy, action. In verse 2 of our reading, in negative terms, Hosea points to specific actions that make concrete the lack of faithfulness, love, and knowledge. He says there's cursing, murder, stealing, lying, adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. This is a picture of a society coming undone, where the most basic expectations around human interactions cannot be relied upon. I remember years ago, I was in a small group with David Springer, a member of our community who's a lawyer, and, and we were chatting about why it was that he was in law school at the time and pursuing a vocation in the law. And David recounted for us his experiences of living and serving in war-torn Afghanistan a number of years ago, whereas he described the most basic functions of law were not in place, where the assumption of consistent and just predictable even treatment could not be assumed because of corruption, because of breakdown in society. There was no clear path forward to, for example, secure a loan or, or no expectation that emergency services could be counted upon in a crisis. And he spoke of how the gift of the law is the setting out of bounds, of limitations that people might know and then flourish. The breaking of bounds, the bloodshed upon bloodshed in our passage this morning captures something of a failed state, a failed society, where basic limitations on our lives that we might live together well are being ignored and transgressed, such that people do violence to themselves and to others. Linking this passage to our own time, biblical scholar Bo Lim writes, this passage should cause alarm for us all on the left and on the right, particularly in our contemporary situation, where social and economic disparities are increasing in epic proportions at dizzying rates, and sexual immorality and violence are woven, integrated into the fabric of our lives. It's this stark picture. Of course, in the negative space imagery that Hosea is drawing for us, we have here a picture then of what life ordered around the knowledge of God might look like. There are clear and concrete behaviors. You could simply go down the line in verse 2 and come up with the opposite of each action. In the place of cursing, blessing, and encouragement, words of kindness. In the case of lying, the telling of the truth, the celebrating of the truth. In the place of murder, the regard for and care of others. 
for stealing acts of generosity, in the place of adultery, the honoring of our vows and our bodies, in the place of the breaking of bonds, a limiting of ourselves and our appetites for the sake of our neighbors. The thing that's striking about this list of behavior is that in no way would we construe these as exclusively religious actions, religious behaviors. Hosea's charge throughout the entire book is one of idolatry, wrong worship. The people of God have pursued idols in the place of Yahweh. But that idolatry doesn't manifest itself in simply disordered worship. The charge is not that they were wearing the wrong clothes or saying the wrong things or using the wrong worship music, and that's the issue. You'll remember from two weeks ago that disordered worship always leads to disordered life. Idolatry always leads to injustice. The actions specified here in verse 2 are not about what one does or doesn't do in the formal actions of worship and religious practice. There we might say related to how we conduct ourselves Monday to Saturday. The knowledge of God plays out in the street, in our neighborhoods, in the places where we shop, we learn, we do business. My knowledge of God or lack thereof is made clear as much if not more by the way I treat my children when I am frustrated as it is by the words I can muster on a Sunday morning. Our knowledge of God is made manifest as much or more in the treatment of persons different from ourselves. The, the driver we encounter on I-35 during rush hour on Tuesday afternoon. As much, if not more, than by what we might discuss during neighborhood groups. Our knowledge of God, or lack thereof as a society, is as on display at detention centers along our borders or abortion clinics in our cities as much as it is in our churches. The knowledge of God, our acknowledgement of Him, is made manifest in the patterns and rhythms of our lives, in what we have done and left undone. Those things, done and left undone, matter to God. This is the thrust of Hosea chapter 4. In this way, we might say the knowledge of God is more like the knowledge of the mechanic who can take apart the engine and put it back together in their sleep rather than the knowledge we might only glean from reading a book. There's something embodied and active to this knowledge. The knowledge of God is to be manifest in the actions, the lives of his people. Otherwise, in no meaningful way can they say they know him. Our third and final observation is that the knowledge of God is connected to creation and its flourishing. Verse 3 of our reading describes the very land as suffering for the lack of knowledge. It is barren and dry. The words actually describe the land as if it were in grief. It is mourning. There's a radical connection suggested here between the actions, the lives of the land's inhabitants and the well-being of the land itself. The description of the beasts, birds, and fish swept away is the language of creation devolving. It's connected to the flood, an act of decreation. 
something about the lack of knowledge of God's people leads not only to their destruction, as the latter verses of our reading declare, but also results in the destruction of the world around them. Writer Cornelius Plantinga suggests we might best understand sin as the vandalism of shalom. He writes, God hates sin not just because it violates his law, but more substantively because it violates shalom, because it breaks peace, it interferes with the way things ought to be. I remember years ago, I was river rafting on the Nile River in Uganda. And as we were going down with our guide, where there once were all manner of large animals, hippos and the like, along this section of the river we were rafting, our guide described how these populations had been destroyed in the 1970s and 80s, hunted to destruction with habitats bombed or shelled in the wars of Idi Amin during those decades. These years later, these decades later, that picture has remained with me as a, a simple and vivid example of how human brokenness, human wickedness is wrought out in the natural world. There is an intimate connection between the patterns of human life and the well-being of God's creation. In the brokenness of our relationship with God, our ignorance of him, something is broken in the, the webbing together of all of God's creation. In negative space, this is actually a beautiful image. When the people of God act upon the knowledge of him, creation is blessed. The world around them flourishes. We capture just a glimpse of this in our gospel reading, the sending out of the 72 to heal, to announce the kingdom of God come near. Shalom breaking out. Genesis 1 and 2, the first chapters in Scripture, describe human beings as image bearers of God in the world, stewards given primacy of place in keeping and tending to the garden, the land, to the world. When this works, it is wondrous. Think of the gifts of good food and drink, the ingenuity of engineers, the creativity of designers and artists the flourishing of creation that can come about by human hands. But when the knowledge of God is lost, when he is unacknowledged, the whole of God's creation suffers. If you haven't noticed yet, Hosea 4 is something of a downer of a text. It concludes with the, or our reading concludes with the calling out of priests and prophets in Israel those who were called to help the people of God in the knowledge of him. Instead, they perpetuated, accentuated the sin, verse 7 says. And verses 5 and 6 outline the eradication of all three living generations, mother and children, the priests themselves. This is a strong word of warning. And it is a word of warning written to people like you, and me, to the children of Israel, to those living in the land, to those who have entered into the promises of God, who have experienced his grace and faithfulness. This is not fundamentally a word to the United States or any particular nation. It's a word to the church, to the people of God, a word of warning. Yet also in negative space, 
in negative relief, I think it is a word of invitation for us. That we might yet today lay hold of the knowledge of God. That we might yet live lives personally, together, corporately, more fully as his people. As people who acknowledge and know him. Such that our lives would reflect the goodness of his character. His love and faithfulness. And such that our lives would bear fruit in actions of mercy and justice, generosity and holiness. Such that the world around us might flourish. It's a glorious invitation. What, you may ask, might it look like for us to receive that invitation? It seems to me, first, it might take the form of of self-examination, looking at our lives. And from there, the form of confession, lament, repentance around the areas of our lives, the areas in our city, our nation even, where we see there is a lack of knowledge, where the brokenness and evil that Hosea names are present in and around us. There's an invitation to grieve and mourn. But the invitation is more than that too. There is for us an invitation to return. In Hosea, the knowledge of God is less like knowledge that must be acquired freshly or less like something undiscovered. It's more like something that must be remembered. Like a dormant language in which you once were fluent, there's an invitation to return, to remember, to reactivate and regain the fluency of God's love and faithfulness, the knowledge of him. There are all kinds of good practices I could suggest in this. Perhaps a a return to the reading of Scripture. Perhaps a a recommitment of ourselves to prayer and study and Sabbath-keeping. To acts of charity and thanksgiving in the world. All good things. But ultimately, the invitation to return is to return to keeping company with Christ. It's to return to Jesus, the one through whom we know the firm and unshakable embrace of the Father. God does not desire to remain an enigma, hidden from us, keeping us in the dark. Rather, this morning, it is the longing of God's heart in love and faithfulness to be known and to make known the way of peace, the way of life. Through the giving of his law, the sending of prophets like Hosea, and chiefly in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, he holds forth to us the knowledge of himself. And it's in Jesus we have the clearest, most complete, crystallized, and beautiful knowledge of God. In him we see what it is to be a person filled with that knowledge. And in him, at the cross, We see even yet, for all that we've forgotten, for all the ways we have failed in our ignorance, the way we've bursted bonds, there still yet is the finding of that life-giving knowledge. There still yet is the promise of it. Perhaps more deeply, more profoundly, for our failures and for the grace and mercy Jesus shows us. So let us come today to this table. Let us return.
for the first time or yet again and keep company with Christ in the knowledge of God. Let's pray. Gracious and almighty God, this is a bracing word. A bracing word for the people who carry your name, who desire to be known as your people. And I ask now in your grace and mercy, but, but truly and rightly, would you by your Holy Spirit convict Speak, open our eyes to the ways we have fallen short of the lives that you have called us to. And beyond that, O oh Lord, by your gracious and life-giving spirit, would you prompt each and every one of us this day to return yet again to your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ in whom there is the promise of true knowledge, in whom there is the promise of grace and mercy and acceptance, that we might more fully become yours, people who know you in the fullest sense of that word. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.